0: Night Rider won't be seen tonight, so we can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X-Files. Welcome to The Gen X-Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about Xanadu. Xanadu. Oh, baby. Wow, that was actually pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Look, some people say Xanadont. (laughs) <laughs> but not me. I really loved this movie. I loved, as it, I loved it as a kid. I had not seen it as uh, an adult. Yeah, in a and, long time, yeah. Um, I literally have not seen it since probably it came you out. like eight yeah. or, or 11 or whatever?
1: Eight or nine or 10, I don't know. Somewhere uh, around there. I had never seen Xanadu because <laughs> I saw one still frame from this this movie, and I thought it was a science fiction movie. Well, the way it is. Uh, it is... <laughs>
0: It's an unapologetic, super happy, fun movie with very little conflict, very little acting. <laughs> that, was, that was the best part <laughs>
1: about an hour into it. I turned to Jim and I was like, so is the last half an hour just them skating and dancing and being good? Because there's no... And he's like, conflict? No conflict? Yeah. yeah. There's there's a little bit. But, it's not uh, until the last 20 minutes when Zeus is like, you got to come
0: back. Well, you know, Muse has got to muse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Look, let's be honest. It's not a great movie. Uh, no. A lot of people don't like it. It has become a cult hit, and rightly so, because it is a fun movie to watch. It is a great movie to get together with your friends, maybe eat a couple of edibles, have some yeah. tequila sunrises, some yeah. colorful, fun drink. Uh, or like you were saying yesterday, throw it on in the background of, of a party. It's really colorful. Gathering There's great yeah. music. Yeah. If you're... I... ELO is one of my all-time favorite bands so I love
1: the music. Yeah. Um Yeah, you're guaranteed if you throw it on a party that eventually someone's going to sit and just watch it.
0: Yeah, cuz it's just it's whack. It's, it's, it's like it's so bizarre. It's like the 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 graphical fidelity of Tron <laughs> mixed in with a uh, a pseudo roller disco movie. Everyone's but so glowy. It's so great. It's it's a perfect I was telling this to Adam yesterday. It's a perfect transition movie from like 79 to yes, 80 because yes. it still has some of the tropes of the 70s, the disco-y kind of stuff, yeah. the roller skates. But we're starting to see the
1: 80s fashion oh my and hairdos. <laughs> so much. It's surprising because it was very – I mean, it was early 80s, but it definitely harkened to all of that bizarre 80s stuff that came up.
0: It is basically the moment when – Cocaine <laughs> took over Hollywood and you could see a cocaine a cocaine fueled production. Zanadu oh, oh they- was just just ripe I I coke I ideas. Felt like I was uh, on Coke during the
1: movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, a lot of uh, bad choices <laughs> were made. <laughs> All right, well, take yourself back to 1980. Yeah. Uh, January, the Dark Phoenix Saga begins in X-Men number 129 by Chris Claremont, John Byrne, and Terry Austin. It culminates with issue number 138 in October and the death of a founding member of the X-Men. Oh, no. Yeah. I want to say, I think at that point it's the first time that one of the major characters had died, but I, I honestly wasn't reading comics back then. So Which I one died? Uh, it, Jean, Jean Grey. She became the Dark Phoenix. Uh, Oh, just like in those movies. That's based on the Dark Phoenix saga, yeah. Uh, February 22nd, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark releases their first self-titled studio album featuring a cover designed by Peter Saville, who had designed album covers for Joy Division, amongst others. Oh, OMD is so good. The OMD album featured 100 die-cut diamonds on the front, allowing the orange inner sleeve to be seen, losing the studio money on every album, despite the album selling thousands of copies. Well, you can't put real diamonds on the cover and expect to make money. Yeah, well, People yeah. would buy the
0: album and they'd just pop off the diamonds and smell, sell, <laughs> smell them. <laughs> smell them, And yeah. then sell them.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's a really cool-looking uh, album cover. but it, yeah. If
0: you leave... <laughs> I won't
1: cry. OMD's so good.
0: I won't shed a single tear.
1: They're one of those bands that I know their music, but I don't really know anything
0: about them. Uh, uh, same, but I love them. They're like, it's Joy Division,
1: OMD, and New Order. Yeah, Joy Division became the New yeah. New Order. Didn't some one of the, the, the lead, lead singer, singer died. died? Yeah, but yeah. Suicide. Yeah. Oh, a, really? There's a great movie about that, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. I, uh, there's also, I love 80s music, and I know so little about the actual bands and stuff. Well, the bands were all Creep City. There always <laughs> weird stuff going on with them. <laughs> August 1st, Vigdis Finnbogadottir becomes the fourth president of Iceland, the world's first democratically directly elected female president. Nice. 1980. That's how far ahead Iceland is from the rest of the world. Yeah. And on August 8th, just a week later, Xanadu was released in theaters. Nice. <laughs> Xanadu started as a way to cash in on the roller disco craze of the 70s. Roller boogie. Yeah. Ooh, ooh ow, ow. Roller boogie was released in 1979 starring Linda Blair. Uh, and despite being lambasted by critics, it made over $13 million from a $1.5 million budget. People love to skate, man. They love to watch people skate to disco. Couple skate. Yeah, you know, it was a big time when you would go to the skating. Did rink. you do a lot of skating rink stuff when you were? growing Yeah,
0: up? of course. That was like, we had like lots of everything was about skating or bowling or whatever back then. We didn't have a lot to do. <laughs> but I remember, man, couple skate. Yeah, big deal. You oh, had yeah. to find had somebody to, find to skate a partner, with, and yeah. if you
1: didn't get in the couple skate, you were a loser. You were a big old fat loser and with your skates yeah. sitting on the side, not skating. Stupid. <laughs> the other skate movie was called Skate Town USA. Which was also released in 1979, starring Scott Bayo, Flip Wilson, Maureen McCormick, Ron Palillo, Ruth Buzzy, Sidney Lassick, Billy Barty, and Playboy centerfold model, Dorothy Stratton.
0: So, Scott Bayo was trashy, uh, Flip Wilson, hilarious comedian who yeah. had a lot of fuzzles, he did his uh, female character, Geraldine, oh, the okay. devil made me do it. Um, Hilarious. Uh, Maureen McCormick, of course, was in Brady Bunch. Yeah. As uh, Marcia, I think, right? That sounds right. Marcia, Marcia, Marcia. And Ron Palillo was Horshack. Oh. In uh, okay. in Welcome Back, Carter. Mr. Carter. Welcome Back, Carter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I remember he had a weird laugh. <laughs> Ruth Buzzy, of course, great comedian. Sidney Lassick. I don't know. Billy Barty, he was the little guy. He was a little... He little was, person, he was the little guy
1: actor before Warwick Davis. Yeah, well, he was in everything. Yeah, he yeah. was
0: the, the my favorite Billy Barty performance is in Foul Play. Yeah, uh, because <laughs> he plays this salesman, and Goldie Hawn gets this like warning about a, a dwarf or a little man coming after him, and then poor Billy Barty is just this guy trying to sell her something, and she destroys him. <laughs> the, and and it's just he he played. Victim, so incredibly well. It was just wow. such a hard it was. I can't wait till we do Foul Play. Okay, Billy yeah, Barty same, has always same. been a favorite of mine. He's
1: hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, Dorothy Stratton was murdered. Yeah,
0: by her husband. Yeah. Star 80 is a really good movie. I think Peter Bogdanovich was that? Yeah.
1: Yes, yes, he did star 80 Uh, Patrick Swayze was actually in it He played the leading role as a skater ace And it was his first movie performance Yeah, he looked surprised the whole time (laughs) Joel Silver and Lawrence Gordon As independent producers set up the movie uh, Xanadu Lawrence Gordon was the worldwide head of production At American International Pictures until 1973 When he left to produce movies on his own AIP AIP, they're all over the 70s Uh, He had two big hits in 1978 with dark comedy The End and Hooper, both starring Burt Reynolds. Hooper! Uh,
0: The End is really funny. It's a really weird dark comedy. I have never seen The End, but after reading about it, it's high on my list. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, Burt Reynolds goes into a mental hospital and wants to kill himself. And uh, Dom DeLuise is in the mental hospital. He's a kooky dukes. And uh, (laughs) he enlists him to kill him. And then, you know... Hilarity ensues. Hilarity ensues. And then he doesn't want to die, but he still tries to kill him. And yeah, it's just like a, a an entire movie of uh, Inspector Clouseau, and Cato going yeah. at it basically. <laughs> but it's really funny. <laughs> Dom Delby's popping out of a closet <laughs> yeah, trying to murder, pretty him. <laughs> much. And then Hooper, man, uh, I just saw that in the theater recently. Oh really? The, uh, oh, that's right. At the uh, at uh, Tarantino's.
1: Oh, the theater, New Beverly. The New Beverly,
0: yeah. yeah. Hooper Man is one of my favorites. It's just such a silly uh, movie about stuntmen with Burt Reynolds and Jan Michael Vincent who's the new kid in town. And it's got uh, a show favorite, um, Uncle Bill from uh, Meteor. Uh, You know, the the old guy, the the guy that played the Russian general. Oh, um, Oh, fuck.
1: Yeah. I can't think of his name. Names.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm not going to even try to remember, but yeah, it's uh it's back when Burt Reynolds did all of these just fun comedies with his friends. Burt Reynolds was basically the first Adam Sandler. Yes, yes. He he would get uh, together with all of his yeah. buddies. It's yeah. like, hey,
1: let's go make a movie. Yeah, hey, we're gonna go drive. Anybody got any get... ideas? <laughs> yeah, let's do Cannonball Run. We'll just drive around in cool cars. Yeah. We c- I got access to this mental asylum. Let's go shoot a movie there. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I love Burt Reynolds. The seventies Burt Reynolds is the best. Yeah. Uh, Silver Joel Silver had been producing TV specials throughout the seventies, and uh, Lawrence Gordon let him take the lead on Xanadu. Uh, it was his first big project. Wow, well, it's crazy because Silver ended up being
0: one of the oh, most yeah. consequential yeah. producers of the eighties and nineties. Oh, yeah, yeah. Every action
1: movie and uh, some in of the most significant action movies of the eighties, Joel Silver series. was all behind yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, The production originally was slated to have a $4 million budget, but grew as bigger names were attached to the project. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, the roller disco craze was already fading as quickly as it had risen. A huge backlash against disco was sweeping the country. In July 1979, the Chicago White Sox had a disco demolition night promotion, allowing you to get in with a discounted ticket price if you brought a disco album. Yeah, disco became... It was hated. It. it was the first thing that I feel like in our generation that everyone just collectively was like, Nope. Yeah, we're done. We're done. We're done. Yeah. The disco albums were destroyed in between games of a double header and a giant explosion. And as soon as it exploded, fans immediately rushed the field and a riot ensued, injuring upwards of thirty people. Well, people are dumb. Yeah. Uh, well, it's baseball. That's baseball for you, Jim. All right. I thought baseball was pretty boring. <laughs> it is. This is why they were so excited. There's a giant explosion. They didn't yeah, know how to handle it. Something finally so, happened. Like, ah. Due to the waning popularity of roller disco, the movie evolved into trying to be more than a roller skating movie, leading to the weaving in of the plot of the 1947 film Down to Earth, starring Rita Hayworth in the Greek muse role and Larry Parks as a stage producer. All right. It's literally the exact same plot. He meets a muse, and then they open up a theater and yeah okay richard christian danis and mark reed rubel were given screenwriting screenwriting credit but for all intents and purposes the script was never technically finished for the film really surprise surprise (laughs) uh it was danis's first film and rubel had one screenwriting credit with the 1978 comedy almost summer almost summer starring actors in their late 20s produced by Motown Productions, who produced The Wiz. Wasn't that, like, the first teen comedy movie? Yes. Yeah, it was the first one that that kind of was, like, teen comedy. Uh, Although all the actors were so old. Yeah. so obvious. They did that back then. Uh, Apparently the writers had a hard time staying on task. Joel Silver held one of his screenwriters for three days against his will.
0: The son of a bitch wouldn't deliver, so I locked him in!
1: Yeah. Uh, That used to be legal back then, I guess. The script was rewritten so many times... Uh, before and during production that entire plot points were left out of the movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, earlier versions of the story established that Sunny was the artist who created the mural from which the nine goddess sisters emerge.
0: Yeah, I'm glad. I mean, that that's, I, creates
1: I, more problems than it needed to. I, I can see it both ways. I mean... because it's like, how did he not remember painting her? Right, right. I agree. I think the way it ended up was fine. I, I think it makes more sense, especially given that... Most of the movie doesn't really make sense, so it, it works out. Yeah, uh, This provided a much stronger expl- explanation for the muse's interest in helping him achieve artistic success. However, continual rewrites and editing during production caused his plot point to be lost, except for one line spoken by Sonny as he laments his failure as a freelance artist.
0: I paint his van. I painted somebody else's mural. <laughs>
1: That was a very spot-on Michael Beck Thanks (laughs) Poor Michael Beck As the movie grew, so did the budget, ballooning to upwards of $13 million Good lord Uh, Too much, too much Uh, Universal was agitated with the budget increases So they fired Joel Silver from the movie Just remember, folks Star Wars cost $3 million Yeah (laughs) Star Wars Star Wars, yeah uh, Silver then immediately went to work for Lawrence Gordon And his independent production company Who immediately put him back on Xanadu <laughs> Nice <laughs> It's just like those kids that got voted out That got kicked <laughs> yeah, out of the, It's like, guess what? We're not going anywhere Yeah Uh, Silver hired Robert Greenwald to direct the movie. Uh, The name might sound familiar, as around 2002, he turned to executive producing political documentaries, starting with three known as the Un-Trilogy. Unprecedented, the 2000 presidential election in 2002. Uncovered, the whole truth about the Iraq War in 2003, which Greenwald also directed. And Unconstitutional, the war on our civil liberties in 2004. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of these or not. No,
0: is he, what's his... What's his political flavor? Is he right wing, left wing?
1: Oh, no, he's very progressive. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, he's much more left wing. Uh, his, he has a company called Brave New Films. but uh, Yeah, it, all he does now is political stuff. Good for him. Yeah. Uh, Greenwald has earned 25 Emmy Award nominations, two Golden Globe nominations, the Peabody Award, and the Robert Wood Johnson Award. He was awarded the 2002 Producer of the Year Award by the American Film Institute. Wow. Uh, but when he was hired to direct Xanadu, he had only had one Emmy nomination for producing the television movie 21 Hours at Munich about the massacre at the 1972 Olympics. Okay. Greenwald is the son of Harold Greenwald and noted psychotherapist who pioneered a variation on rational emotive behavior therapy called direct decisions therapy and he just screamed make a decision (laughs) what is it just in your face yeah Yeah. (laughs) and be like
0: peanut butter or ham make a decision
1: Your children or your husband? Make a decision! He was an expert on the psychology of prostitution and authored a dissertation on call girls that became a best-selling book and movie, the 1960 film Girl of the Night, starring Anne Francis and featuring Lloyd Nolan as psychotherapist. Honey, it's research. (laughs) I don't want to keep seeing these prostitutes, but it's research for my book. (laughs) I have to. I gotta know what it's like. Robert Greenwald started his career directing stage plays in New York, then moved to California in 1972, working as the theater director at the Mark Taper Forum. I've been there. Yeah. His most notable work was directing I Have a Dream in 1976, a play based on the life of Martin Luther King Jr., with Billy D. Williams playing Martin Luther King. These last few weeks, I've realized that Billy D. Williams was a much bigger star than I thought he was. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. He was in a lot of stuff. He did a lot of stuff, yeah. Most people just remember him from being Lando Calrissian or the Colt 45, Malt
1: But Both of those eclipsed everything else he did, and that was, you know, which is not not a bad thing. He played Martin Luther King. He
0: played uh, in Lady Sings the Blues. He played, uh, I forget, some other historic character. But, yeah, yeah, he was in everything. He was in all the Motown movies.
1: Did he play Scott Joplin? I think so, I think it was him, yeah, yeah.
0: He just, that guy had such a career.
1: yeah. And then he became known as the black guy in Star Wars. Hey, (laughs) Chewbacca! Greenwald directed three TV movies before directing *Xanadu*, *Sharon*, *Portrait of a Mistress* in 1977, starring Trish Van Devere. Maybe got his dad's help on that. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Katie, Portrait of a Centerfold in 1978, starring Kim Basinger. Yeah, I'm seeing a little bit of a pattern (laughs) here, some portrait patterns. And Flatbed Annie and Sweetie Pie, Lady Truckers, in 1979, starring Annie Potts, Kim Darby, and Harry Dean Stanton. What a great cast. I'm kind of interested about seeing that. Flatbed Annie and Sweetie Pie, Lady Truckers, is available on YouTube if you want to watch it. I think I do. Uh, it sounds amazing. It looks really, the stuff I saw looked amazing. Uh, in 1984, Greenwald would direct the Burning Bed, the most watched TV movie of all time, earning another Emmy Award nomination.
0: Yeah, starring Vera Fawcett, and it yeah. completely changed her career. Yeah, it, yeah, uh, it was the first time people were taking her seriously. It was a, the Burning Bed is a really tough play. It's about it's one of the first plays about domestic abuse. Right, right, and uh, this woman is abused uh, to the point where she burns her husband, her husband her on fire, on fire yeah. in the bed. I don't know if it's based on a true story. Uh, it's probably based I, on a lot of true stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> regardless, it is. Yeah, yeah. It's a good play. I've seen it a couple of times. I had a friend who starred in it. It was it was so weird because the friend was such a weenie, such a weenie man. And then when he did this play, it was like, damn, dude. <laughs> <So> you're, <laughs> not, you're not a weenie man anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. It was, really, it was very impressive. It good actor. He yeah. was. It was an impressive performance.
1: Uh, so it turned
0: out to be kind of a... Not, not a great person, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> well, okay then. That's but he was really impressive in that part. Great, great. Uh, so casting, Olivia Newton-John was cast as Kira, uh, also known as Terpsichore. Uh, she was the muse. Before starring in Greece, Olivia Newton-John made her name as a recording artist. She was born in England, but her family emigrated to Australia when she was five. She started acting in high school and the following year started singing. Newton-John combined these two passions in 1970 when she was recruited for the group Tomorrow, formed by American producer Don Kirshner.
0: Spelled T-O-O. Tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah. Which is weird, because what is it? It's it's like, you too, tomorrow?
1: I mean, it, it, I, doesn't, I don't, it doesn't make any it, sense.
0: Australians. Yeah. They're crazy. Yeah.
1: Uh, in 1970, the group starred in a science fiction musical film and recorded an accompanying soundtrack album on RCA Records. Both the LP and the movie were named after the group. Well, so it's Tomorrow? The movie is literally called Tomorrow. I will see that. Uh, it was, uh, it's considered to be the first, first space musical. All right. Yeah. That same year, the group made two single recordings, You're My Baby Now and uh, Going Back on the B-Side and I Could Never Live Without Your Love and Roll Like a River on the B-Side. Neither track became a chart success, the project failed, and the group disbanded. Yeah, well, surprising. A band called Tomorrow. Hey, look, you gotta fail sometimes before you succeed. In 1971, she released her first solo album, If Not For You. Uh, The title track, written by Bob Dylan, was her first international hit. Hey, <laughs> I, just, I wrote for Jimmy <laughs> uh I'm
0: interminable. <laughs> yes. I can't understand how I'm such a great folk hero. I, I can't stand the sound of my voice. <laughs> I, I never got.
1: I never got him. I'm sorry. I don't, I, I 100% agree. I, I feel the same way about like Bruce Springsteen. Like I don't understand why people thought he was he was popular or also, why they liked him. But
0: it really this really this is silly. It, but it totally tainted my uh, my view of him. Talk about, like, don't yeah. learn about your hair yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah, So my best friend, growing up, laser tag Larry.
1: Yeah, laser we tag Larry. We haven't talked about laser tag Larry in oh, a while. Oh, I miss
0: laser tag Larry. Well, laser, poor Larry. I'm so sorry that you're called <laughs> laser tag Larry if you're listening. Um. <laughs> <Every time. laughs> I should call you uh, oral surgeon Larry or, you know, whatever. Uh, but so laser tag Larry's dad apparently went to college with Bob Dylan. And he came into a party, Bob Dylan.
1: Yeah, and yeah. he
0: just started like slamming on the piano and stomping on it, and people were like, "Get the f out of here!" And they ended up kicking him out of the party because he was so wow. obnoxious and such a pain in the ass. And his dad was just like, uh, "He was such a jerk. I could not stand him." And and uh, and all of his Dylan stories just made me. <laughs> and granted, he was a, a punk. You know, he was just a young kid. Yeah, and we were all. Yeah. And I was one of the biggest jerks as a you know <laughs> as, as a kid. But still, it just after hearing that it it uh, it um.
1: Fueled my yeah. disdain for mr. dylan i I am so not a fan of that guy that comes to the party like with a guitar and just starts playing. <sighs> it's it's like, you need to look at me. You need to look at me. I it's... saw Dylan in the dead. I saw because oh, I used yeah? to
0: be a pretty big deadhead. Back oh, in the day. That's so bizarre to me, Jim. Oh, it's bizarre to me, Adam. <laughs> Trust me. I can't listen I, I hear one three bars of a dead thing. And I wanna nope nope, I'm out of the room. <laughs> but I saw quite a few dead shows as wow. a mute. And uh and I saw Dylan and the Dead. And I just was like, Oh, this just can we just have the dead? <laughs> yeah. Do we need Dylan?
1: Yeah, I know I'm in the minority on this, people. I know I don't. I don't disagree with you. I've never been a fan of Dylan. I I d- realize he's talented, true. But of like, course. I don't. He was a great voice. And I damn. don't get it. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, look,
0: Dylan, the Beach Boys. I hate them both. <laughs> I know people love them.
1: I I love the Beach Boys, so that I'll be the other side of that coin.
0: Yeah, please, because oh god, I hate the Beach Boys. I hate them more <laughs> than I hate any other group. I think. Uh
1: my least favorite group of all time is three eleven. Uh, well Okay, but yep. is that really
0: a group? Does that
1: care? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they I mean I went and saw the offspring and the offspring opened for three eleven. Oh wow. And literally didn't even stay. I, I was in the mo- in the pit, and I was just like, all right, I'm good. I saw The Offspring. I'm going to leave. It's because their name means KKK, Adam. 311. That's three Ks. Part of it is that their fans, like their hardcore fans, are insane. Really? Like, they've all seen them, like, 500 times. Yeah. It's like, it's crazy. It's like, have a... This is your identity? This is what you choose to be your identity? All right. Yeah. They're also, you know,
0: people that follow the insane clown posse around. Uh, that is true. That is true. You know, whatever they're called.
1: Every band out there. Juggalos, someone, right? Someone Juggalos. To, yeah. There's always there's always somebody's their biggest fan, and you know, it's scary. Yeah.
0: When your identity becomes your obsession, then you, you need to kind of take a step
1: back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in 1972, Newton-John's second UK album, Olivia, was released but never formally issued in the United States, where her career floundered after If Not For You... Her fortune changed with the release of Let Me Be There in 1973. The song reached the American top ten on the pop charts at number six, country charts at number seven, and adult contemporary charts at number three, and earned her a Grammy for Best Country Female and an Academy of Country Music Award for Most Promising Female Vocalist. Yeah, when she started singing that country part of that song medley. I literally had no idea but Olivia Newton-John was a country star. Oh, yeah. She was a lot of things before Greece. I, That's what's crazy. It just blows my mind. I, the next single, I Honestly Love You, became Newton-John's signature song.
0: I love you. I honestly love you.
1: God, it was like she's in the room. Was, I, know. <laughs> I it, Her spirit entered me. Uh, the ballad became her first pop number one, staying there for two weeks, second adult contemporary number one for three weeks, and third top ten country hit. I just love that... It, Apparently, it's all genres. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just weird. I don't think of country and pop as being Well, similar. everything was kind of similar back then.
0: And a lot of songs bounced around the charts. Because yeah. people were... Country wasn't just a bunch of
1: <laughs> truck-loving, y- <locals>? <laughs> yeah. divorce-hating,
0: uh, America living... Yeah, You
1: know, it wasn't all, you know, i mean, it's to be murky. I mean, I could see how, like, Johnny Cash could, like, hit the rock charts yeah. or something. Like, I totally could see that. Totally. Yeah. It's it just everything was a
0: little bit more flowy back then. Yeah. People, yeah. all the kind of, you know, because there was southern fried rock and there was regular yeah. rock and there was, you yeah,
1: know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just fascinating to me. I, I, it, to me, it just proves how pointless all these sure. <laughs> lists are well, and all this. I mean, stuff. look at Dolly Parton. I mean, yeah. all of her songs were chart toppers on every genre. Yeah. Uh, it earned Newton-John two more Grammys for Record of the Year and pop, Best Pop Vocal Performance Female. In the United States, Newton-John's success in country music sparked a debate among purists, who took issue with a foreigner singing country-flavored pop music being classed with native Nashville artists. Because you gotta got to be angry about something. Uh, that foreigner. That, that white <laughs> that foreigner. foreigner. <laughs> I know. It's, From Australia. She's got a weird accent. I don't like her. Uh, in addition to her Grammy for Let Me Be There, in 1974, Newton-John was also named the Country Music Association Female Vocalist of the Year, a designation which made her the first British singer to have won the award. I don't like it.
0: Yeah. You little murk, and ain't spoke to go to no foreigner.
1: Right. The title also meant she defeated more established Nashville-based nominees like Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton, and Tanya Tucker. Oh, it ain't good. The protest by country music participants led to the formation of the short-lived Association of Country Entertainers. We're going to make our own association. Notice, notice Ace. This is, I find, so, so funny. How dare she? We're we're just going to go do our own thing. All right. You're, get a life, people. Yeah, exactly.
0: If <laughs> your whole uh, raison d'etre is to poop on the country music whatever association because of, of Olivia Newton-John then good lord this is why the 70s was just so a do-nothing decade because this is what people were (laughs) concentrating on
1: Newton-John was eventually supported by the country music community Stella Parton Dolly's sister recorded Ode to Olivia and Newton-John recorded her 1976 album Don't Stop Believin' in Nashville, Tennessee nice for 45 years Olivia held the Guinness World Record for the shortest gap 154 days by a female between number one albums oh Uh, it was between If You Love Me Let Me Know and then Have You Never Been Mellow Have You Never
0: Been Mellow, have you never been
1: uh, on the US Billboard 200 album charts until Taylor Swift in 2020 did it with 140 days between folklore and Evermore? Oh, is there um, nothing that old Swifty can't do? Which is also funny because Taylor Swift very much is in the vein of Olivia Newton John going from country to pop and like, yeah, yeah, she owes a lot to Olivia. She New does, Newton-John. she definitely does. I'm sure she would probably be the first person to say that. I don't know. No, she's, she would. <laughs> then she'd write a song about it. I have, a weird, I have a weird deep respect for Taylor Swift. I don't like her music, but uh, but she seems like a very interesting person. Well, she's anyway. a very successful person. Yeah. In 1977, Olivia Newton-John's Greatest Hits became her first platinum album. Since Grease made so much money, Xanadu was meant to launch her career as a solo star. She turned down roles in both Can't Stop the Music and the Blues Brothers to star in this movie. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I the like Blues get... Brothers. I'd... She would have played... Uh, Carrie Fisher's part. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Jake's, or, oh, Jake? Yeah, Jake was Jake. Belushi, right? And yes. Elwood was... Elwood
1: was the... Uh, Ackroyd. Ackroyd. Yeah.
0: Yeah, she was Belushi's ex. Really fun role, but not a very big role. I get her turning it down, because it was a pretty small supporting part.
1: Yeah, yeah. Due to its complete failure at the American box office, it became one n- the one and only time she received top billing without a co-star in a theatrical release. Uh... She wouldn't appear in another big screen musical until *Score*, a hockey musical, thirty years later. Okay. Yeah. No. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Newton John views dancing with Gene Kelly as one of the highlights of her career. It was a great scene. Oh, that and was oh my was God, fantastic!
0: That dude in his sixties, yeah, is so almost graceful. seventy. Yeah. Good lord! And it was such. A, and she's a really good dancer too. It was just nice to see an old school.
1: Yeah, like dance sequence. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. It was done very well. She fractured her coccyx while filming the dance sequence. Suddenly, Um, suddenly, been in motion. That wasn't the song. Oh yeah, I was like, that wasn't the the song where she was literally just standing there and they were slowly pushing in. I don't think so. Uh, That would be be (laughs) very (laughs) embarrassing. Odd if she broke the one time she tried to get off the platform, she fell down and (laughs) punched her in the crotch. Newton-John met Matt Latanzi, who had a minor role during filming. Uh, afterward, Latanzi accompanied her to Australia on a promotional visit for the film and met her parents. Uh, Latanzi and Newton-John were married in 1984, had one child, Chloe, and divorced in 1995. All right. Yeah. Michael Beck was cast as Sonny Malone. Michael Beck.
0: Oh, poor <laughs> Michael Beck.
1: Beck is from Memphis and attended Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi on a football scholarship. Uh, after graduating with a degree, degree in economics, he was one of 30 out of 2,500 applicants chosen for London's Central School of Speech and Drama. So he had, a, he had to have had some kind of talent. I mean, I, why, why? Look, <laughs> the problem with
0: Michael Beck, and it's not his fault. It's just it's not that he's necessarily a bad actor. I don't think he had any idea what he was doing in this movie. I don't think I he he had a well. good direction. Yeah, yeah. But he's also just, he doesn't have an innate charisma. No. That no. A movie star has. No. He lucked out by being in The Warriors, which is an amazing movie, great yeah. cult movie, yeah. and he was great in it, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. It, but it was because he, 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 he was perfect for that part. Yeah. And he did a really good job playing yeah. the, the gang guy and these weird gangs. Oh, the baseballers yeah. are coming. Yeah. Um, Great game, too, by Rockstar, by the way. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, he just... In this movie, also, you're not getting any favors by having to act against one of the most charismatic humans on the planet. Yes. Gene Kelly. Yes, yes. Who is just exudes charm and has the most radiant smile of any human being I've ever seen. Anytime he's on screen, you're just staring at Gene Kelly. And so it's just... And, and, you know, Michael Beck probably is, uh, you know... method actor stellar adler or yeah. trained in one of these you know he's he sees himself as like a de niro or one of these yeah, you know yeah. indie you know tough guys or whatever not tough guy, but you know what i mean like yeah. a gritty you know yeah, realistic, kind of a realistic I got, yeah i gotta play a real man yeah yeah i gotta play real man you got it yeah <laughs> he gets really angry about that stuff but it's just and also
1: it was such a bland part there was nothing I, I, there.: for I think him. that was a lot of it, is that I don't know if Michael Beck is a bad actor. Uh, I just think that he needs a lot of help. And there was no script. No. there was no direction. But on the flip side, if they gave it to the goot. If they gave it to Steve Guttenberg, yeah, yeah. I he think he would have nailed it. That opening scene where he throws all the stuff out the window, all I could see was Steve Gutenberg. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was made for the goot. <laughs> well, so uh, Beck's stage credits, just to give him a little bit of cred, uh, beginning with college, included Camelot as King Arthur, of Mice and Men as George Milton, Romeo and Juliet as Tybalt, and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. He had to be good to get those parts. Yeah, yeah. And look, you can... There is a difference between
0: being a stage actor and oh, a film yeah. actor, yes. and a lot of film acting has to do with charm and has to do yeah. with presence. And you can have a stage presence, and you can be a very great stage actor, but you don't have that that oomph or that yeah. it factor yeah. that makes you, you know, watchable. He he just kind of just blended in he to just the scene, bumbled he just kinda, around, and yeah, it, he everybody around him had a more engaging. Role, you know, yeah, his, yeah. his boss, uh, Simpson, James Sloyan or whatever. Sloyan, yeah, yeah. You know, he had the fun lines. Even like his... Even the the, the dude with the glasses and Richie. the big hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was uh, Fred McCarron. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, they all had stuff, and he was just kind of like, oh, I'm going to paint my stuff,
1: and I'm well, just going to... I got to find this girl. I yeah. got to go find this girl.
0: I got to find the girl. And it was just... Uh, it's it, it just unfortunately he's just very generic. He's just
1: he's yeah. not uh, remarkably handsome. I feel like he was given a leg up because he kind of has a similar feel to like Travolta and like kind of that that yeah. like E kind of like or you know whatever like hey you're the city guy and you're you know. he he got a lot of shots
0: and it, it, just unfortunately and
1: it's not his fault right he just didn't have that factor that makes you a star yeah. His first feature, as Jim said, was the Warriors in 1979, playing Swan. Uh, a ton of people were considered for the part of Sonny. Peter Frampton was one of Olivia Newton-John's top choices for the role. He would have been great. Uh, Universal wouldn't allow him to be cast due to the critical and commercial failure of *Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 1978. <laughs> we're going to do that one next week. Well, I understand that, on, but yeah. it wasn't his fault. Yeah. Uh, Andy Gibb of the Bee Gees was nixed for the same reason. Uh oh, yeah. Yeah. John, uh, Travolta actually passed because he was working on Urban Cowboy, so they actually um, wanted him for the I'm doing Urban Cowboy. I, I don't want to do it, eh? I would do a movie with her. Yeah, I mean, he would have been good in Xanadu. Xanadu!
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: Olivia Newton-John suggested fellow Australian Mel Gibson for the role of Sonny. Hi, hey, Mel Gibson here. I'm going to do uh, Xanadu. Uh, Joel Silver would eventually work with him on Lethal Weapon and its three sequels. Uh, plus... A ton of other movies, too. Uh, Matt Latanzi actually auditioned for the part before being given a smaller role in the film. Uh, Michael Beck didn't have to audition for the part, as he had worked with producer Lawrence Gordon on The Warriors. Uh, so it seemed like he was kind of the fallback. Warriors, <laughs> come out and play. Oh, I'm so excited whenever we finally cover that. Uh, unfortunately, Beck continued the trend of appearing in bad movies, starring in Megaforce in 1982, directed by Hal Needham and starring Barry Bostwick. Yeah. Mega force. I want to say that I actually think I saw this when I was younger. I'm uh, sure you did. Remember. I'm sure I did. Warlords of the 21st Century in 1982, also known as Battle Truck, uh, starring uh, Annie McEnroe, James Wainwright, John Ratzenberger, and Bruno Lawrence. Yeah, John Ratzenberger, right? Yeah. <laughs> Another one that is available on YouTube if you want to watch it. Yeah. It, it looks fascinating. Uh, Triumphs of a Man Called Horse in 1983, the second sequel to A Man Called Horse. So the- Two sequels that were unnecessary. All right. Uh, The Golden Seal in 1983 starring Steve Railsback, which I don't know if that's in reference to like a seal or like something you put onto like a piece of paper. I I don't know. It it might have to do with uh, End Times or something. That's true. Breaking the Seal. Beck wouldn't appear in another theatrical release feature film after The Golden Seal in 1983. Uh, in well, when 19- you've done a perfect job, <laughs> it's time to retire. In 1996, Beck appeared in Forest Warrior, starring Chuck Norris and directed by Norris's brother, Aaron Norris. Hey, hey, it's Chuck Norris here. Um, yeah, that was kind of like a. It's a little late to the game, but I decided I was going to do my Rambo ripoff. <laughs> I the funny thing is that I saw the the poster cover and I thought it was a period piece because he's the way he's dressed. Uh, uh, Chuck Norris is dressed on the cover. No, it's not. I, I just like a costume. <laughs> it's not. I like a cool costume. Uh, it was released on deck to video in My United beard States. will beat you up. <laughs> it also has the greatest poster, as I said, of Chuck Norris in period costume and hair, despite the movie being set in present times. Okay. Uh, the film is perhaps best known for a scene in which Chuck stops a chainsaw by grabbing it with his bare hand. Yeah, which, which, of course, he can do. Uh, Another memorable scene features a logger who aired guitars with his chainsaw. Um, This movie is available on YouTube, and it looks like the worst thing I've ever seen, and I am so excited to watch it. Yeah, I might have to take a look. Uh, Beck had much more success on TV. He was in the 1978 miniseries Holocaust. Uh, He played a a German Nazi soldier. Uh, Hey, look I'm a Nazi. (laughs) I'm going to put you in the gas chambers. Uh, Between 1979 and 1993, he was in 15 TV movies, had a starring role in Houston Nights in 1987, appearing in 30 episodes, and played two characters in 1989 and 1990 on Murder, She Wrote. Good for him. I mean, he still had a career. It just, you know, wasn't in the features, unfortunately. Starting in 2000... 2000- well, don't poo-poo on TV. Oh, no, 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 I'm saying. is that Well, I know, but I, that's the big thing. Back in the day, it was like, you could do TV and that's fine, but yeah. everybody wanted to be in the big pictures. Well, you know... You just be thankful you have a career I mean, he, he was obviously making money He was, he was still working He, was, yeah. he was, had a career Starting in 2005, Beck started recording audiobooks for author John Grisham Recording 12 Grisham books Interesting His most current recording is for trust Knowing when to give it, when to withhold it, how to earn it, and how to fix it When it gets broken A Christian self-help book With what? the longest title ever <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Just uh, reading the title would wind him Yeah uh, The last TV show he appeared in was an episode of Jag in 2004 uh, he's okay. still he's still around. Uh, he just doesn't really work anymore. He's still doing the the last um, Grisham audiobook he did was like two years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Gene Kelly was cast as Danny McGuire. Yeah, Gene Kelly. Oh, my God. And for me, the number one reason to watch Xanadu is Gene Kelly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kelly grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. When he was eight, Kelly's mother enrolled him and his brother James in dance classes along with their sisters. As Kelly recalled, they both rebelled. We didn't like it much and were continually involved in fistfights with the neighborhood boys. Called the sissies. I didn't dance again until I was 15. Yeah. At one time, his childhood dream was to play shortstop for the hometown Pittsburgh Pirates. Of course. By the time he decided to dance, he was an accomplished sportsman and able to defend himself. Okay. (laughs) He entered the Pennsylvania State College as a journalism major, but after the 1929 crash, he left school and found work in order to help his family financially. Crazy. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, He created dance routines with his younger brother Fred to earn prize money in local talent contests and performed in local nightclubs. In 1931, Kelly enrolled at the University of Pittsburgh to study economics... He became involved at in the university's Cap and Gown Club, which staged original musical productions. All right. After graduating in 1933, he c- continued to be active with the Cap and Gown Club, serving as the director from 34 to 38. Now, now that i got my fists all ready, I can dance. <laughs> Kelly was admitted to the University of Pittsburgh Law School. His family opened a dance studio in the Squirrel Hill na- neighborhood of Pittsburgh. In 1932, they renamed it the Gene Kelly Studio of the Dance and opened a second location in Johnstown, Pennsylvania in 1933. Kelly served as a teacher at the studio during his undergraduate and law student years at Pitt. Nice. Uh, Kelly eventually decided to pursue a career as a dance teacher and full-time entertainer, so he dropped out of law school after two months. He increased his focus on performing and later said, With time I became
0: disenchanted with teaching because the ratio of girls to boys was more than 10 to 1. And once the girls reached 16, the dropout rate was very high. Yeah.
1: (laughs) All right. It seems like he's a... Protesting a bit too much. Yeah. Yeah. About a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Kelly tried his hand as a choreographer in New York, but eventually returned back to Pittsburgh. There he started stage acting, appearing in a number of shows, dancing, choreographing, and acting. Choreographing and acting. Eventually, this led to Broadway producers noticing him, and he started getting work on Broadway. Nice. The irony of like being in New York and then going to Pittsburgh and then getting work in Broadway. Yeah. It's how it yeah. always works. Welcome always to show weird. business. Yep. Yeah. In 1940, he got the lead role in Rogers and Hart's musical Pal Joey. This role propelled him to stardom. During its run, he told reporters, I don't believe in conformity
0: to any school of dancing. I create what the drama and the music demand. While I am 100% for the ballet technique, I only use what I can adapt to my own use. I never let
1: technique get in the way of mood or continuity. His colleagues at this time noticed his great commitment to rehearsal and hard work. Van Johnson, who appeared in Pal Joey, recalled, I watched him rehearsing, and it seemed to me that there was no possible room for improvement. Yet,
0: he wasn't satisfied. It was midnight. We had all been rehearsing since eight in the morning. I was making my way sleepily down the long flight of stairs when I heard staccato steps coming from the stage. I could see just a single lamp burning. Under it, a figure was dancing.
1: Gene... He was a perfectionist. Uh, hardcore. Yeah, yeah. Well, relax, Gene. It, it, I mean, it paid off. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, the guy makes it look effortless. <laughs> yeah. Offers from Hollywood began to arrive, but Kelly was in no hurry to leave New York. Eventually, he signed with David O. Selznick, agreeing to go to Hollywood at the end of his commitment to Pal Joey in October of 1941. Selznick sold half of Jean's Kelly's contract to Metro-Goldwyn-Meyer to MGM for his first motion picture for Me and My Gal in 1942, starring Judy Garland. Kelly said he was appalled at the sight of myself blown up 20 times. I had an awful feeling that I was a tremendous flop. For me, my gal actually performed very well. Yes, I wasn't a flop. No. Uh, it's also weird. I still find it very odd that back in the day, they were essentially just contracts. Mm-hmm. Like you were a contract. Yeah. Uh, and I could sell your contract to, to another studio. And it's just it's just so bizarre.
0: Yeah. Well, that's how everybody started. uh Harrison Ford started as a contract, contract player. Yeah.
1: You get like 300 bucks a week, and you just do
0: whatever movie they tell you to do. <sighs> That's crazy.
1: He achieved a significant breakthrough as a dancer on film when MGM lent him to Columbia to work with Rita Hayworth in CoverGirl in 1944, a film that foreshadowed the best of his future work. In CoverGirl, his character's name was Danny McGuire, heavily implying that his character in Xanadu is the same person. What? Yeah. And Kelly's next film, Anchors Away, in 1945, MGM gave him a free hand to devise a range of dance routines, including his duets with co-star Frank Sinatra and an animated dance with Jerry Mouse of Tom and Jerry, the animation for which was supervised by William Hanna and Joseph Barbera.
0: It's such a great scene. It's like that and his singing in the rain dance are probably his two most iconic dance scenes.
1: Anchors Away became one of the most successful films in 1945, and Kelly was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor. Nice. In October 1944, Kelly was inducted into the U.S. Navy after having a deferment in 1940. He was placed in the photography unit, making documentaries for the Navy, which spurred his interest in getting behind the camera when the war ended. Hmm. In 1949, he started his directing career, co-directing On the Town, the first of many movies with Stanley Donan. Nice. He started in American in Paris in 1951, directed by Vincente Minnelli, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Was he Liza Minnelli's husband? Uh, I think it was Her Father. Oh, yeah, yeah, Her Father. Yeah. Okay. In 1952, he co-directed with Stanley Donen and starred in Singing in the Rain, which at the time was only a modest box office success, but since has been regarded as the greatest music- musical film ever made. I'm singing it's in the rain. such a good movie. Just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling. I'm hap, hap, happy again. Later in the 1950s, as musicals waned in popularity, he starred in Brigadoon in 1954 and It's Always Fair Weather in 1955, the last film he directed with Donan. His solo directorial debut was Invitation to the Dance in 1956, one of the last MGM musicals which was not a commercial success.
0: Yeah, it, it
1: kind of... It had fizzled out. Yeah, that point. It had, yeah,
0: they had saturated the market. Yeah, oh yeah. Just like so many different genres just disappear... There used to be swimming movies. With, oh yeah, uh, Esther yeah. Williams. Who?
1: Oh yeah, you know, yeah, that was they, like a. They had these giant yeah. pools and did all these. It, th- 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 you ne- yeah, there was like in the '30s that it, they were everywhere. Yeah, and, and that kind it, of
0: that just dis- wrestling movies were really big. They did yeah. tons
1: of wrestling movies, and you know, and just uh, so many genres just disappeared. Yeah. Uh, He continued as a director in the 1960s with his credits including A Guide for the Married Man in 1967 and Hello, Dolly! in 1969 starring Walter Matthau and Barbara Streisand. Hello, Dolly! I said hello, Dolly!
0: Hi, Adam!
1: The (laughs) The film was nominated for seven Academy Awards including Best Picture. It lost Best Picture but won three others. Nice. Uh, He starred in the poorly received action film Viva Knievel in 1977 with the then high-profile stuntman Evil Knievel. Viva Knievel. (laughs) It's also considered to be one of the worst movies ever made. Oh, we're definitely covering it. Evil Knievel was just a phenomena. Yeah, Uh, Xanadu would be his last film role. In Kelly's opinion, The The concept was marvelous, but it just didn't come off. Kelly's health declined steadily in the late 1980s and early 1990s. In July '94, he suffered a stroke and stayed in Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center Hospital for seven weeks. Ugh. Yeah, that's a long time. In early '95, he had another stroke, which made him severely disabled, and he finally passed away on February second, nineteen ninety-six. Oh, so that means he had like a year of hell. Yeah. Uh, he didn't I, – I really – I think he stopped in movies. I mean, because he had 16 years there where he didn't do any movies. Sure, He had some they, – they did – he hosted the That's Entertainment uh, in the two sequels, mm-hmm. which appeared in the 80s and early 90s. But, uh, but otherwise, no, he didn't do anything. I, I'm sure he was just – he seemed very, with this movie, like the sequence he danced with Libby Newton-John, like they filmed it after the main filming was mm-hmm. done, and he only allowed three other people to be on set. Oh. The director, the cameraman, and then and then an assistant or something. But I think he was very self-conscious because he was older and didn't sure. think he'd be able to actually perform properly. He did but, great. It was the best looked, scene in the movie. He looked fantastic. He's so good. He's just so good. I, uh, Matt Latanzi was cast as the young Danny McGuire. He literally... Literally, the only scene he was in was in the just before the dancing where they're ghosty and he's doing the memory. Gene Kelly's doing the memory and mm-hmm. he's playing. He's miming the the saxophone clarinet. Or, clarinet or whatever. And then the little guy in the back who's with Olivia Newton-John, that's Matt LaTanzi. Nice. He was also in, in another scene, too, was he? He was a dancer. Yeah. He did appear as a dancer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Xanadu was Latanzi's first film in addition to the minor role of playing a young Danny Maguire he was also a dancer he was in Rich and Famous in 1981 starring Jacqueline Bisset and Candace Bergen I remember that uh, it was uh, director George Cooper's final film Uh, He made an appearance in Greece 2 in 1982, not starring his then-girlfriend, Olivia Newton-John.
0: No, that starred... uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer.
1: Michelle Pfeiffer, yes. In 1983, he appeared in The Modest Hit, My Tutor, with Crispin Glover and Karen Kay as a high school student trying to lose his virginity. Keep your hands off her. Um.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, wrong movie, Jim. I saw that. My Tutor is such a weird movie. Yeah. And... uh, Chris McGlover is so weird in it. I love Chris McGlover. I love Chris McGlover in... Which Friday the 13th is he in? Is it like two or three? I think,
1: no, I think it's like four or something. Maybe. It or might there, be the one with uh, Corey Feldman. It's the one with Corey Feldman. Oh, where they, it is. It's like the twins. Yeah, yeah they're at the cabin and like, everyone... An awkward... He's like...
0: Yeah, it's so bizarre. So, I love him so much. Uh, I just watched a clip of the
1: interview that got him banned from Letterman when oh, he was like, I can the kick, high kicks. I can yeah. kick. Yeah,
0: And Letterman's like, okay,
1: great, I, um, let's go to commercial. I went to the Egyptian theater and saw um, a, his one of his movies he did, he directed. He would. He fully admits that he does all these high-profile movies just so he can oh, yeah. make his weird independent stuff. Yeah, he's like Cassavetes. Uh, every single actor had Down syndrome, mm-hmm. uh, except for the main guy who couldn't even, like he was literally in a bed because he couldn't get out of the bed. But Chris Glover plays like Satan, and it's just about this girl trying to find her pet snail
0: it, it yes he but he also likes to he likes to do films about people that aren't normally seen in films yes and, you know he yes. he's a very interesting guy uh, and and a very peculiar man. Yeah. His house is supposed to be amazing. It's just yeah. like this old-timey Hollywood.
1: My yeah. my buddy uh, Jeremy who directed Carnival Souls the remake of Carnival Souls uh Crispin Glover starred in it and there was a great moment. I was producing something with Jeremy. We were driving over the Hollywood Hills in his convertible and he gets a phone call. It was Crispin Glover and he just talks to Crispin Glover for like 10 minutes and then hangs up and I was like, "Dude, you <laughs> should
0: awesome. put him on speakerphone, man." Yeah. Like I
1: you know Anyway, I, fa- I love Crispin Glover. He's fascinating. He's such a weirdo, but he's wonderful. He is. Yeah. Uh, he, so Matt Latanzi also appeared in That's Life in 1986, starring Jack Lemmon and Julie Andrews. That's Life. Uh, Roxanne in 1987, starring Steve Martin and Daryl Hannah. Ah,
0: such a great movie. A great movie. In
1: 1989, he had the leading role in Catch Me If You Can, also starring Lorraine Lachlan, Grant Heslov, Jeffrey Lewis, and M. Emmett Walsh. Not to be confused with Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. N- no. Directed by Steven Smith. Yes, the film was the feature film directorial debut of writer and director Steven Summers, with a soundtrack by Tangerine Dream. Oh, they did great work, such good work. Was they did the soundtrack for Risky Business. They did, uh, and for Grand Theft Auto Five. Oh yeah, uh, he was a huge flop, uh, making less than four thousand dollars off an eight hundred thousand dollar budget. Good Lord! Uh, Latanzi stopped getting work after this. Surprise, surprise. He took a job as a contractor for a home building company in California. Good yeah. pivot. Uh, in 1993, uh, he and his wife, Olivia Newton-John, moved to Australia so he could audition for the Australian soap opera Paradise Cove. Paradise Cove. He ended up winning a six-month contract on the show. Uh and Newton-John divorced in April of 1995. Yeah, after he had his success in soaps. Uh, in 2008, Latanzi briefly appeared on the MTV reality series Rock the Cradle, supporting his daughter Chloe, who was a contestant on the show. Uh, that same year, Latanzi, a lof- lifelong environmentalist, was reported to be living off the grid near Malibu, California. All right. He now resides in Portland, Oregon. Uh, they also heavily imply that uh, he might be behind the disappearance of the guy that Olivia Newton-John got involved with after the divorce. Oh. He apparently went hiking somewhere and disappeared. and Yikes. Nobody knows what happened to him. Um, Matt Latanzi might. <laughs> uh, James Sloyan was uh, Simpson. Allegedly. Yeah, well, allegedly, yes. James Sloyan Sloyan, was cast as Simpson, Uh, Michael Beck's boss rocking that awesome beard. He's in everything. Yeah. uh, Sloyan's television career includes numerous brief appearances on daytime dramas, The Young and the Restless, General Hospital and Ryan's Hope, and guest appearances on primetime series, Wonder Woman, Baywatch, Quantum Leap, The X-Files, MacGyver! Party Five, Matlock,
0: Murder She Wrote, Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman, Buck Rogers in the Twenty Fifth Sunshine, Star Trek: The Next Generation, Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, and Star Trek: Voyager.
1: Yeah, he was one of those guys that the producers of Star Trek would just go back to all the time.
0: Yeah, he also just showed up on everything, and he usually played a jerk. Yeah, like he did in this movie. He yeah, was kind of a jerk. Although, as you said yesterday. He
1: was kind of in the right.
0: He's not a jerk. (laughs) Look, uh, Sonny was hired to do a job to (laughs) paint giant versions of album covers to, to his promotional things. And look, man, if I made an album cover, if I was the guy who made an album cover, and then Sonny Malone with his airy, arty ways decides to change up my cover. Right, right. F you, buddy.
1: Yeah. I did or, this cover, you're just supposed to copy this cover yeah. I didn't ask you to editorialize or Sunny, You spend three weeks trying to paint a woman That should just take a day yeah, Come on like, uh, you know.
0: I'm, I'm totally with uh, Simpson on this one Simpson!
1: <laughs> After being the voice of Lexus in numerous ad campaigns James Sloan is now the voice of Mitsubishi At the age of 83 Mitsubishi Yeah. Does anybody drive these cars anymore? You know, honestly, I don't know. You never see Mitsubishi's anywhere. I thought Mitsubishi folded. I own two Mitsubishi's. I had two Did you? two eclipses. Oh wow, wow. Yes. Yeah. I, apparently, they're still out there. Maybe they're big in uh, the foreign market. Well, uh, I think here. they still they make like little SUVs and stuff. No, oh, yeah, that probably. Uh, Dimitra Arliss was cast as Helen. Arliss, a stage actor, made her feature film debut in The Ski Bum, starring Zalman King and Charlotte Rampling. Okay. She appeared in The Sting in 1973, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. A Perfect Couple in 1979, directed by Robert Altman. And in Firefox in 1982, directed and starring Clint Eastwood. Oh, all good movies. Firefox is
0: so weird. I think it's Steve, uh, Steve Martin. I think it's <laughs> uh, Clint Eastwood trying to steal a plane.
1: Yeah. A, an experimental yeah. plane or something. It's super weird. She made numerous guest appearances on TV. Her longest stint was eight episodes on Mary Hart and Mary Hartman in 1977. Uh, she guest starred in two episodes of the animated Spider-Man series in 1995. Her final role was in the 2000 film Bless the Child, starring Kim Basinger, Jimmy Smits, and Christina Ricci. Yeah, that's some end of the world baby or something yeah yeah she died in 2012 at the age of 79 with complications of a stroke Oh. uh the producers uh oh actually well, do you let's talk about some other actors first before yeah just there's a few other actors
0: um you would know fred mccarran who played richie he yeah. was in a bunch of stuff um also sandal bergman Played Muse Number One. Uh, you may know her from such films as Red Sonia and Conan the Barbarian. That's so funny. Um, but she was a big action star yeah. in the eighties. Um, but she was shortly after this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But she was a. Uh, she started out as a dancer. Yeah. Um, so she was in a bunch of stuff. Also, and they, I don't. They don't credit him. But Joe Montana apparently was in this. Yeah, I don't. I maybe he was a dancer. He was probably an extra. Joe Montana looked so different. When he was younger, yeah, he just kind of looked like he kind of looked Hispanic a bit. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And I think he played a lot of Hispanic characters in his earlier career, which is really interesting. (laughs) 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 Um, And then uh, there was uh, Carol Brown or Coral Brown. I'm sorry, Coral Brown, uh, who played um, Hera, probably Uh, Hera, the voice of Hera. Uh, and then, of course, uh, yeah, 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 oh, yes, uh, <laughs> Wilfred Hyde White, yeah. who we know from uh, Buck Rogers in the 25th century, playing the Oh, the, oh yeah. Buck. Hi. Oh, I see. I oh, 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 yeah, oh, yeah, well, yeah, get you. Oh, oh, and, and he was uh, Zeus. He was the voice of Zeus. It was just so stupid. So, the conceit of the movie is uh, you know, you know, the muses. Greek yeah. mythology, those muses. Yes. Yeah. And they help yeah. guys and girls get their artistic stuff going. And they're well, different muses yeah. for different things. One muse, one dream. One muse. And two of But, uh, so the muses pop out of this, uh, mural. The, mural, yeah. the muse mural. <laughs> and they go zipping Tron style all over, all oh over, the, all world, over the world. All over the world. Yeah. All over the world. Um, and, uh, and so. Olivia Newton John is a muse, and so she goes to muse
1: uh, uh, Michael Beck. Michael Beck. Sonny. Sonny. And, but. <laughs> that She literally roller skated up to him and then just kissed him and left. Right. And he's like, what Well, that stuff you can't do today. <laughs>
0: well, and you're not supposed to fall in love as a muse, Adam. Oh, that's true. She did. She broke she the broke rules. She broke the cardinal muse rules. Yeah. And uh, you're just supposed to help move on, but she didn't. She fell in love. So with Michael with Michael Beck, Beck, the most unbelievable enough, part of the movie. And apparently also fell in love with Gene Kelly back in the day. Yeah. And he's like, don't I know you? And she's like, no, you don't. And he's like, well, you look exactly like the woman in this picture that I dated and then <laughs> disappeared
1: on me. But we're not going to make that connection. I, uh, I love the fact that Michael Beck, when he gets into that big room and and Gene Kelly's showing him like, oh, look, I'm going to play stuff that I was in. And he has this picture and it's obviously her. And, he, and then it, it just is like. Oh, I'm distracted by something else and just puts she? it away. Like, I know her. It, yeah, uh, like, but listen to this. That's des- me. Despite the fact that he was trying to find her, yeah. and literally there was a connection there. Okay.
0: Well, a bunch of crap happens in the movie, and then uh, she disappears because she's got to go back, you know, to heaven or whatever where all the, the gods weird live. Weird Olympus right? blank space yes, that the then is filled with weird, <laughs> weird neon Tron lights, strange. Uh yeah, it, 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 she basically lives in an ELO yes, album cover. Yes, yes. Um, so Michael Beck, he, he ain't going to let this stand. Sonny's not going to let this stand. He's got to yeah. find his lady. He's got to find Kira. Yeah. So he finds the mural that he allegedly painted, but we're not sure anymore. <laughs> and then,
1: favorite scene in the he whole totally wily coyotes it, baby. <laughs> the build-up to it's so good. I was like, oh man, I want to see him hit that wall so hard. And uh, and, and he didn't. Did he goes so
0: running right through into into the ELO album cover, and then you know he's like, "What are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here." And then. Oh, oh, yeah. No, no you, you can't go. You can't go down there. that's not how it is. It's done. So Zeus is like, no. Puts yeah, kibosh no. on it. Yeah,
1: yeah. You can't. You can't.
0: Then he leaves, and then harry's like, "Come on, give her a moment. Just give her a little moment." Yeah. Oh, okay. I say, I do to get I'll give her a moment, and then he does, and then she goes back. And she sings a medley of every different genre of music that there ever was (laughs) and then disappears again. So she gets her moment. But uh, I love him. It was so great to hear his voice. Oh, he's so great. Because he's just, and he was so good in the toy. And he's just like one of these underrated British actors that, you know. He's so good. So charming. His voice is so distinctive. So distinct. Yeah. Hey. Hey, guys. Oh, hey. Hi. Colonel of Aberdeen here from 25th Century. Um. Yeah, I just wanted. To, I heard a couple of mentions. My ears were burning because you mentioned uh, Puck Rogers. We had a guest star who was very nice.
1: Who was that guest star you talked about? Uh, that was uh, James Sloyan. Oh, <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, James.
1: Pretty uh, sure he played a bad guy.
0: Yeah. Well, not in real life he didn't. He brought <laughs> biscuits and gravy for oh, everybody. Wow. Yeah. You, you haven't had biscuits and gravy until you had him 25th century style. <laughs> they, they put in chilies.
1: Oh. Yeah, little yeah.
0: little uh, green chilies. Oh, wow. Yeah, it gives it a pop. Anyway, I just wanted to say that um, Wilford had right, even though the second season was so widely different than the first,
1: uh, he was just a pleasure to work with. Yeah, yeah. He, he a nice was a little guy. handsy. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, sometimes.
1: Yeah, but you know, yeah, he that was just old school. He was an old. Maybe he just needed help standing up. He was old man. Uh, that's what he said. Um, <laughs> I was saying I'm falling. Why you falling into my boobs? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> gotta get back. All right. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Uh, it's always nice when she starts. It is. Crying. Yeah, I love her. Uh, I also do want to see the deleted scene where after he he goes through the wall, they show a bunch of homeless people from Venice hanging out because they fell through the wall by accident. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Oh. Uh, Oh, but I love uh, – James Hyde White is his – no, what's his yes, name? Yes, Wilfred. Wilfred. Wilfred Hyde White. Hyde White. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so good. I I remember him the most from The Toy, which is one oh, of the yeah. last movies he did, but there's the butler and the toy. He – yeah, he was great.
0: He was uh, also, just the one other character actor that you would totally know is Stephen Perlman. He played the foreman. He, he – uh, if you saw his face,
1: you would instantly
0: recognize him from yeah. a thousand different things. So. Yeah.
1: There was just a bunch of unsung heroes in there. Yeah. The producers scored when they convinced ELO to contribute music to the film. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Wah, won. <laughs> I love ELO. Apart from the title track, none of Electric Light Orchestra songs were composed specifically for the film, but had in fact already been written as potential ELO recordings by Jeff Lynne. Well, Jeff Lynne was a lazy, lazy man, and that's what oh. he did. <laughs> he was so lazy, he wrote all the music before the movie was even made. He
0: was, uh, he, he was uh, clairvoyant. Yeah. He'd yeah. be like, guys... I have a vision. We're going to be asked to do the soundtrack for a horrible movie. It's going to be sort of a cult classic later on in life. But when we do it, we're going to be totally panned.
1: (laughs) They also hired Cliff Richard, who worked with Olivia Newton-John a number of times, and the Tubes to collaborate with Newton-John on New Music. Oh, the Tubes. Oh, my God. That sequence is great. It is great. And I I loved the Tubes as a kid, but I just forgot the Tubes even existed. (laughs) I also want to point out Cliff Richard is not very big here in the States but he's huge in the UK he's considered to have written the first rock and roll song in the UK oh. in 1958 uh, but he is the only people that have outsold him in the UK were the Beatles and uh, I believe Michael Jackson okay um, anyway he's, he's a huge star that uh, nobody here has ever heard of the animated segment was added after filming ended when they realized they needed an extra original song for the movie. And it was cheaper to hire Don Bluth to animate than shoot live actors. <laughs> nice. Uh, the nightclub set cost a million dollars to build. I just want to point out on the animated sequence, the saddest thing about that was
0: the animated version of Michael Beck was so much more
1: captivating he was. than the real Michael Beck. I'm sorry, Michael Beck, but they didn't do you any justice at the They did movie. not. They did not. The film underperformed at the box office, making only $23 million against a reported $20 million budget. Well, I was one of those tickets. Uh, The soundtrack album, however, was a major hit. It reached number two in the UK and number four in the US. Watching this movie, it listed so many memories of me
0: listening to probably on cassette tape. Yeah, On the Walkman, the Xanadu soundtrack. Because all of those songs I was singing along with, because I just... Instantly remembered them. And so the funniest thing about watching these old movies that, that, that I fell in love with as a child is I saw all of these movies before I damaged my brain with uh, <laughs> drinking and substances and things. And I have, like, total effing recall of all yeah. of these things. Yeah. Like, if I watch the Happy Days or Laverne and Shirley or whatever, yeah, I'll know the exact episode. I can recite the dialogue wow. of the episode because – it was, uh, it, that stuff is just so ingrained in me. Wow. And, and even though I have not thought about Xanadu or the Xanadu soundtrack <laughs> in probably 35 years, man, I just remembered every single one of those songs.
1: Uh, it was, the, the album was huge. It was really big in 1980, but it was even bigger in 1981. Uh, it actually got to number four in 1980, like a year and a half after the movie was released. Oh, yeah. It was huge. Well, because they kept releasing singles. Yeah. And, it was, and nobody knew what was coming next because
0: nobody saw the movie.
1: <laughs> it was certified double platinum in the US and gold in the UK and also spent one week atop the cash box and record world pop albums charts. The soundtrack contained five Top 20 singles, Magic by Olivia Newton-John. Have to believe that it's magic. Uh, that was number one on the Pop Charts for four weeks, number one on the Adult Contemporary for five weeks. Yeah, my favorite, and Adult it was, Contemporary. It was Certified Gold, yes. Uh, it was her biggest hit up to that point. Actually, I do love Adult Contemporary. and I, 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 I love actually the, love it, too. I also love that that's what it's called. I know, I know. Xanadu, <laughs> Olivia Newton, uh, written by Olivia Newton-John and ELO, went to number eight on the Pop Charts for a week. Xanadu! Then I do. Uh, got to number two on the adult contemporary for a week and number one in the UK for two weeks. Uh, All over the world by ELO got to number 13 on the pop charts and number 45 on the adult contemporary. The world. That was when they were, the leases come out. out.
0: They
1: were yeah, turning so. into light and flashing around. <laughs> oh no, wait, no. I, or was that, <laughs> I'm Alive? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm Alive was that song. Maybe yeah, probably. Yeah. I'm
0: alive.
1: Yeah. That was by ELO got to I'm alive. number sixteen and number forty eight on the pop charts and number forty eight on the adult contemporary it was also certified gold. Yeah, certified and, gold, baby. And then uh suddenly by Olivia Newton John and Cliff Richard, uh, which got to number twenty on the pop charts and number four on the adult contemporary charts. Suddenly That was when the they wheels were are in motion. That was when they were doing this this <laughs> super sexy <laughs> skate dance thing. We'll dre- what is it? Oh, it's a uh, suddenly
0: the wheels are in motion and I, I, I will cross any ocean for you. Oh, ah.
1: uh, Universal actually canceled press screening, suggesting they were not confident in the film and it went on to receive negative reviews. <laughs> yeah, okay. Variety called it a stupendously bad film whose only salvage is the music. Roger Ebert gave the film two stars out of a possible four, describing the film as A mushy and limp musical fantasy. With a confused story redeemed only by Newton John's High Spirits! and several strong scenes from Kelly. Moreover, Ebert criticizes the choreography, saying The dance numbers in this movie do not seem to have been conceived for film. He noted that mass dance scenes were not photographed well by cinematographer Victor J. Kemper, who shot at eye level and failed to pick up the larger patterns of dancers, with dancers in the background muddying the movement of the foreground.
0: I don't know. I still think they did a better job than The Wiz. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> at, I least
1: would agree. Sequ- yeah. at least they were all in sequence. At least they were all at the same danced. time. Yeah, yeah. 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 Janet Maslin wrote in her review, Like The Wiz, Xanadu is desperately stylish without having any real style. A double feature of Xanadu and another musical released a couple months earlier, Can't Stop the Music, inspired John J.B. Wilson to create the Golden Raspberry Awards, nice, also known as the Razzies, for an annual event uh, dishonoring what is considered the worst in cinema for a given year. I think they're stopping that. I think they stopped it. I think they've stopped it now. Well, I think they did something really crappy. They they gave it to some kid or something, and it's just like, you know, don't pick on kids. That's... That's mean. It's, yeah, exactly. Uh, Greenwald won the first Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Director, and the film was nominated for six other awards. Nice. Uh, Be- Beck actually received a Razzie nom for Worst Actor and another nom the following year for Megaforce. Megaforce. Uh, over the years, the film has developed a cult following. Yes, because it is so weird. It's, again,
0: look, it's like Bugsy Malone yeah. Or, yeah. or like The Wiz. It's just these great car wrecks that you can't look away from. Yeah, But there's also... Great music. You have Gene Kelly, who is rises Amazing. above the everything yeah. in this film. He so still has an impeccable performance. He's so likable.
1: I, so I could have watched a hundred minutes of him just sitting at that booth and talking to yes. Michael Beck. Like I could have. Such been, yeah. a
0: good chemistry with Olivia Newton-John, and they
1: dance so well oh. together. That dance sequence is worth watching. It's sixty-eight years old, and yeah. that man is more fluid than most people. Exactly. It just it, look. There are.
0: Like I said, have some friends over, have some <laughs> drinks, make some margaritas, and, and sing along and have fun with this movie. Yeah. It's a ridiculous yeah. fun romp, but it's made to be enjoyed. I'm really surprised that this hasn't become you know, kind of a, a cult hit like uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show or something yeah. where people see it in the movie and go act and along dude, or, or sing yeah. along because it just seems like it has that energy to it. Right. That it's ridiculous that you can lovingly make fun of it and still really enjoy it and enjoy the music. I just think that it, there, a lot of the, okay, we have 100% uh, cemented the fact that I had horrible taste as a child. (laughs) I don't even know if I would call it taste. I was a consumer. Yeah. But I will argue that all of these films this month, even though they're not the best of the bunch that we've done, there are things that are worthwhile and all of these movies, whether it's Michael Jackson's amazing yeah. performance in The Wiz or Gene Kelly's amazing performance in Xanadu, or Olivia Newton John just watching her and so listening good. to her sing, or the great ELO
1: soundtrack,
0: or just watching poor Michael Beck
1: watching kind of him flop and flounder fail around room.
0: in this movie, just not knowing it's there just, is
1: skating as intense as he can.
0: Just the scenes the pro the the, the, the thing is is the scenes with Gene Kelly and Michael Beck. It looks like Michael Beck's just really nervous to be I, on screen with Gene Kelly don't blame him, which I would be, I guess, but it's just it's almost like they're acting in two different movies, yeah, but unfortunately, the Michael Beck movie is a porno, and <laughs> that's the kind of level of acting that we're getting from him
1: and oh, and look, no.
0: I will give Michael Beck one hundred percent props forever for the Warriors, great yeah. movie, yeah, and he's a good actor, and he he came from good stock, but unfortunately he was the. He came at the wrong time. If he would have popped early in the '70s, he yeah. would have had a much bigger career because he would have popped along, uh, you know, along Pacino and yeah. Cazale yeah. and all of these guys that aren't necessarily Hollywood good-looking but have this kind of yeah. streets feel to yeah. them. If yeah. you know, if, streets feel. It's a good way of putting a, it. Yeah, lack of a better term. But he came around at the end of all that, and people were kind of done with the hairy. Yeah, you know we so uh, don't want to see the streets people anymore. Exactly, they wanted movie stars again. Yeah, yeah. And so I think he—that's th- kind of what doomed his career. It's yeah. just
1: bad timing. Honestly. Well, and, and 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 honestly, he was just in a series of bad movies. Yeah, like it just wasn't, which wasn't his fault. No. I mean, he got cast in stuff, but then it was, like, badly directed, And he's got shot, really
0: good moments in this, too. He he's does. He's got charming moments and fun moments. It's just I don't think that he was directed well, and I don't think he really knew. I, I don't I, think anybody you, – when, you, when you're nobody. doing a movie when you don't have a script done, yeah, you don't really know what you're doing. And yeah. if you're the star – like, Gene Kelly, it makes sense. Come in. Dance. Come in. Do yeah. the club. Come in. Everything yeah. has motivation or whatever. And you know, I'm sure that when he ever he was on set, it was the most professional. Oh yeah, the most professional days of the shoot. You know, because yeah. you don't want to f with Gene Kelly. But I think Michael Beck, where he was on the set on days where it's like, well,
1: what do you guys think we should do? <laughs> yeah, you know, well, we had a script, but we just tore it all up. So let's just uh, we'll do, let's just make something up just exactly. Make something up. But it, if you haven't seen it, it's totally a fun movie to watch. I'm pre- I don't know for certain, but I'm pretty sure that Gene Kelly. Uh, I don't think he was roller skating before this movie, but watching him roller skate, he is so joyous and so oh, happy. Man. It's just, he, he exudes
0: joy and personality and charisma yeah. and talent. And he he's an unstoppable force. Yeah. Even the worst movie in the world can't stop him from being completely no, lovable no. and talented. And not that this is the worst movie in the world. It's just, it is the birth <laughs> of cocaine and cinema and this was fueled by, like, 80% cocaine, yeah. I believe. Because, it, again, like we said, this is the perfect movie that that changes the guard from the 70s yeah. to the 80s. Yeah. And it had the old – the problem was, is, is, again, timing. It had the parts of the 70s that people were over. Yeah. Disco, roller disco. Yeah. You know, the, the, the disco roller disco club which nobody was going to. Yeah, which stops. But then it had, like, the fashion and the hairdos, but it was before the time that the fashion and the hairdos were really that uh, radical. Yeah. And then, you know, the music was kind of... It was at the end of that era. Yeah. You know? And so it just had a lot of historical problems, script problems, direction problems. Yeah. But it's one of those... Great bad films, which is yeah. truly fun to watch and is yeah. truly a great guilty pleasure and is truly a great cult hit, which is something that is still super enjoyable to watch, faults and
1: all. It's a bad film that you can rewatch. Like, like Plan 9 from Outer Space yeah. is a bad movie, and I saw it once, and I tried showing it to a friend, <laughs> and I literally, 20 minutes into it, was like, I can't watch this yeah. anymore. It's terrible. No, this but is this terrible. is fun, and it's it's got such
0: great music and such exuberant performances
1: well so because the music a five million dollar broadway musical adaptation of the same name began previews in may of 2007 and opened with olivia newton john in attendance on july 10th nice uh in the musical kira is the muse cleo not terpsichore uh jackie hoffman and mary testa co-starred in a plot twist new to the broadway version as evil muse sisters The show, which humorously parodied the plot of the film, was a surprise hit, receiving praise for its satirical approach, and was nominated for several Tony Awards. Nice. I think if you lovingly satirize something, it's
0: always great.
1: The original cast recording was released on December of 2007. I'd like to hear that. Uh, The Broadway production closed on September 28, 2008, after 49 previews and 512 performances. That's a good run. That is a great run. A successful national tour followed. Uh, Douglas Carter Bean, who wrote the book for the musical based on the film later called Xanadu. What happens when you let straight men near the musical? I blame cocaine. It's like people say, when you hear Ray
0: Charles play, you can hear the heroine. When you watch Xanadu, you can see the cocaine up on the screen.
1: Not a more accurate statement has been said. No. <laughs> no, but, uh, but in a good way. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I didn't, the whole time the movie, I kept turning and looking at Jim and being like, what is going on? Yeah. But I will say, twenty four hours later, I'm still thinking about it. I'm still enjoying it. Yeah, still ladies.
0: singing the songs. Still, look, I took a walk right after we watched the movie. I popped on my ELO nice. album nice. and listened to some of my favorite ELO songs. It's there was a there was this innocence, this this weird. Um, this weird optimistic innocence in a lot of 70s late 70s stuff and these yeah. musicals that's infectious that's that's what keeps these as cult hits is because yeah. there's a relentless positivity <laughs> to Santa yeah, yeah that goes all the way to the end same with the whiz you know and say and i'm I don't know i haven't seen sergeant peppers since i was a child we'll, we'll find out <laughs> um i just remember being so sad and uh, just crying my eyes out really oh yeah it was very really
1: sad. Mm-hmm. wow okay wow that's that totally changes my thoughts about this movie well i just in one
0: part and then it and then it ends up being okay i think but it was just like i was very deeply invested in that movie <laughs> I'm very curious to see. Oh it Oh my again. god! I am so. I've never seen it. I'm so excited oh, I to love see that it. movie. But I love this movie. I loved. I'm not a big musical fan now, but as a kid, I just I, anything with the music that I enjoyed, and I loved ELO back then. Yeah, I think I ended up getting the album just because I thought that the cover was so cool. Oh yeah, with the spaceship. Yeah, was a great double album, man. I love that album. Um, but it's just these are fun, silly, dumb movies yeah. that. Probably, if we weren't covering them, most people wouldn't even remember them. Yeah, and I guarantee you that ninety percent of you out there have no idea that Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band even existed. Yeah, you know, and, but we're gonna get you to watch it. Baby. Oh, yeah, we are. We're gonna get you to watch it, and that's what's coming up next week. Um, do yourself a favor, like I said, like we said, uh, get some margaritas or some tequila sunrise, some yeah. fun, colorful drink. My ties. Yeah. It's your pick. Maybe a couple of edibles if you do that thing, a couple yeah. of gummies. And then just have your buddies over, order some food, have some drinks. And you could do this and the whiz is a great double oh, feature. Yeah. yeah. And and just have fun. Yes. This is what this yes. movie's these movies are about is just plainly having fun. Yeah. Have fun, people. <laughs> it's a, it's it's uh it's a hilarious, it's, it's back when, when. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program, Homes and Yo-Yo, already
1: in progress.